0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. All right. Well, we're starting a new series on Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to group those two together. Uh, In the uh, Hebrew Bible, they would have been seen as one large book. So we thought we might as well go ahead and look at both of them together. Um, And today we're going to look at a little bit of background. What's going on leading up to the book of Ezra, the events of Ezra, uh, and to do that, we're going to look at a kind of a big theme that God is faithful even when we're not. So if you want to kind of understand Old Testament history, um, the flow of the Bible from the beginning uh, up until the point of Ezra and even today, those are two kind of key theme ideas that we're going to look at today and, and look at specifically in the beginning, his promises to his people and the special relationship to his people. And then we'll spend the second half of the sermon looking at the history immediately preceding Ezra. What's going on? What's happened to Israel? Okay, What uh, promises has God left unfulfilled that are still sitting out there? And we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. And so um, we've got a lot of ground to cover if we're going to cover all of The promises of God, you know, basically all of Old Testament history up until Ezra uh, in one night. So stick with me. There'll be a lot of thumbing back and forth. There'll be some text up on the screen for you to follow along as we trace this special relationship of God to his people, the promises he makes, okay, and then his sovereignty over all events. And so uh, those are kind of the things to keep in the back of your mind as we look at all of these things, okay? Okay. And to start, we need to start at the beginning with Abraham, the the first covenant of God to his people. So we're going to look at the Abraham covenant, this first promise between God and the people of Israel. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So a special promise between God and Abraham. Abram's still at the moment. Uh, A couple of things to kind of point out. Notice that Abram really hasn't done anything special to receive this promise. God chooses him. Purely based on God's choice. Okay. And that also pertains to us as new covenant people. Do we deserve anything? No, we've all sinned. But God chooses to save some. And here God chooses Abram for this special mission and he makes him a promise. And notice in this, who's the acting agent? Uh, God says, uh, I, "From your to the land, I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. So God is making this promise. God's the one acting. God's the one in control. God's the one running all of this. And that's a theme we see all the way through Old Testament history, right? God's moving events. He's in control. He's the one uh, that's overseeing everything. Um, He's the one that makes things happen. And then we are to respond with obedience, right? Faith. And it's that faith we get to see in Genesis 15. This is, Paul refers to this, where God then restates the covenant with Abraham. He tells him about the future. And then in 15.6, we get something different in the second one. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15.6. So, um, God chooses his people. He makes that special relationship. God's the one, the acting agent, the one in control, the one that does everything. But we have a response, right? And Abraham responds in faith. And that is his role um, to follow and act out that faith. Um, also in Genesis 15, there's a little bit different of a twist. There's sacrificial uh, use of animals, right? He tells Abraham to take some animals and cut them. It's the same ones that'll be used in the sacrificial system. It's looking forward to the fact that we're sinners. We're in need of that. And it's also the picture that the ancient kings would use to cut a covenant, to make that special relationship. They would use uh, sacrifices or cut animals like this. And so this relationship is initiated by God, it's followed by faith of Abraham. And then we see it again in Genesis 17, okay? Genesis 17, verse two, I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Notice, yet again, who's the acting agent? God, okay? Are we gonna screw up? Yes, okay, thank goodness these promises are based on God. It's my covenant, I will multiply you. Um, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between you and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants afterward. Um, then verse 9 of Genesis 17, now as for you, so what's Abraham's response? You shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. right, so God chooses, God's acting, he establishes the promise, he establishes the covenant, and then our response, obedience, faith, obedience, okay? Obedience coming out of faith, uh, as we see in the New Testament. Um, Now, how, for you guys that are Old Testament scholars, how does Israel do on this? I hear a couple of chuckles. Yeah, not so great, right? It's, it's a history of God being faithful and his people not, right? This constant struggle between the faithfulness of God, his protection, his, uh, you know, leadership, and then the people failing over and over again. So you see this through Isaac, through Jacob. You see Joseph, the story of Joseph, how God protects his people, um, with Joseph moving them to Egypt, but they continue to struggle at times. You know, Joseph's brothers are not the best of characters, as you probably remember. And then you have the whole Egypt situation, the the sojourn in Egypt, where Israelites are enslaved, and they are um, underneath Pharaoh, uh, and then God remembering his promise is going to act again. So y'all remember this, there's the the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites are enslaved, the story of Moses and how God protects him. He flees into the desert after uh, killing the Egyptian. And then in Exodus three, we see another promise, another action of God. Exodus three, six through eight. He said, also, God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to good and spacious land, to land flowing with milk and honey. Yet again, God promised a special relationship with the Israelites. Is God faithful even when we're not? All right? Is God going to protect them and free them from slavery? Yes. Right? And he is promising, I have come down to deliver them and take them out. So yet again, compassion for his people, love for his people, fulfilling his promise um, to Abraham and to the people of God. So we get Moses, he returns, you know, the the story of him and Pharaoh, the uh, plagues of Egypt, ending with, what's the last plague? Do y'all remember? The firstborn, right? This final punishment of, of Egypt and this freeing of the people of Israel. And this time... Um, they are protected. You have the story of Passover in Exodus 12. Uh, So 12, 12 through 13. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Yet again, God's the one acting. God's the remember His promises. That God's the one that's going to provide a means of salvation for the people of Israel to escape them out of slavery. Sounds familiar? Um, echoes things later on, right? Uh, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their uh, doorposts tells the angel to pass over them in this plague. And so you see blood covering, you get the uh, freedom from slavery, and now the people of Israel are able to leave Egypt. Okay, is everybody following me? We've covered, now we're all the way up to Exodus, Leviticus, those kind of places. And then you get the coming of the law and the sacrificial system, where God provides a system temporarily, that is then looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, this ultimate Passover lamb that will free the people from slavery, okay? And so you get the whole law, you get the Mosaic Covenant, which is uh, expressed again in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9, um, where we get uh, these words, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the people. So yet again, Did they do anything special to deserve God's mercy? All right, he chose them. For you are the fewest of all peoples, verse eight of Deuteronomy seven. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, does he keep his promises? Kept the oath, which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of pharaoh king of egypt verse 9 Know therefore that the lord your god. He is god the faithful god who keeps his covenant and his love and kindness His mercy to a thousandth generation for those who love him and keep his commandments yet again God is faithful God will fulfill his promises God is protecting his people and God will redeem them from the house of slavery and has. Uh, And Moses is reminding them of that fact. Um, Yeah, so God chose them, not based on anything that they had done, anything special. He loved them. He keeps his promises and um, constantly provides even in the midst of failure. So if you think about the stories. Uh, In Numbers and Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy, Israel is constantly messing up. They're constantly grumbling about lack of food, lack of water, um, oppression, whatever, okay? There's a Red Sea in our way. All kinds of examples of how they aren't faithful even when God is. So he will continue to protect them. Um, And it's ironic that we have this passage at the same time Aaron's creating a golden calf, right? He's they have completely punted even uh, the worship of God. And this pattern continues. God keeps to his promises even when people are unfaithful. And you see that in judges, right? That's the constant theme of judges, of the, of the people turn away from God, and then God has to send a savior, okay, a judge to protect them, to uh, free them. And so there's a constant theme cyclical nature, this constant pattern of God being faithful to his promise and his people not being faithful to him. But yet he continues to provide ways out. Then the end of Judges uh, ends with them calling in Samuel for a king. Um, not because they wanna fulfill the promise that was in the law, okay? The law predicted that Israel would have a king, but that's not why they wanted one. It's not out of faithfulness to God. It's because they wanted to be like everyone else, right? We wanna be like the other nations. We need a king. Give us one now. And so they get Saul. Uh, And in my notes, I have Saul who is the worst, okay? uh, That might be an understatement. He is not a faithful guy. Okay, but does God protect them even in that? And does he provide a form of savior after that? A redeemer, a person that can come along and turn them back to God. The David, a man after his own heart, comes after they've failed and followed followed this guy named Saul, this disaster of a king. And so then you get a a new promise, the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. So now... We're kind of tracking our way through these different promises and covenants. And in Second Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, Now therefore, thus you'll say to my servant David, this is God speaking to Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you've gone, I've cut off your enemies before you, and I will make you a great name, like all the names of the great men who are on the earth. Verse 10, I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and plant them that they may live in their own place. So yet again, God chose David when he was just a shepherd boy, right? This, um, from even before time, <clears throat> God chooses, not based on any actions of the person, but just because of the favor of God. And then God's the one that acts. I will appoint, I have chosen, I will raise you up. I will raise up, and then in verse 12, we get a, a new twist. I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is where we're really starting to point our way towards Ezra, and where God predicts that Solomon will bring a house for God, build a temple for God in Jerusalem, And then as long as Solomon and his descendants follow him, that temple will stand, all right? So all that is necessary is for the Israelites to remain faithful. Are they gonna be faithful? Okay, it's repeating over and over again. But then there's another promise here. I will establish a descendant of David and his throne and his kingdom forever. Who's he talking about there? It's the Messiah, Okay, This hope that even though you guys have screwed up, even though you've had everything that you could possibly need, even though you continually be unfaithful, I will provide a Messiah, a line of David that will establish an eternal kingdom that will redeem you from slavery forever. Okay, now... That takes us back to our last series, right? With the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom, uh, life in the kingdom. So he's looking forward. He will keep that promise as we've seen in our last series. But I want to focus on on the temple and this relationship now of Solomon and his descendants, the kings of Israel and Judah, uh, and their lack of faithfulness for God. So this is moving us further in time towards Ezra and we'll see that God is faithful and his people are not, okay? So Solomon comes along. Um, we, we talked about, I kind of skipped over it, but even David struggles, right? Even David fails many times, even though uh, he's seen how faithful God is. Solomon takes over. Solomon builds the temple just as God promised to David. And in 2 Kings 2, uh, we see an interaction between God and Solomon. Talk about more of this relationship of he and his people, more of the promise. So 2 Kings 2, 2 through 9, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to it at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you made before me. So this is during the dedication of the temple, and Solomon has prayed. And I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually Uh, However, verse six, but if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, verse seven, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name and I will cast out of my sight. Okay, yikes. Yet again, is God gonna keep his promises? Okay, So what is he promising will happen if they disobey him? They're gonna lose the land. They're gonna lose the temple. They're going to be kicked out and exiled, okay? So if you've been following along, you should be able to predict already what's gonna happen, right? God's been faithful and he promises, you turn away from me, you will go into exile. And so guess what happens? They turn away they go into exile. And so after Solomon, the country splits apart. His son Rehoboam is a terrible leader. Uh, Jeroboam splits off the northern tribes to create Israel. The southern tribes remain faithful to Rehoboam. You have the split of the two countries. And yet again, you get the same pattern over and over again that you saw in Judges. Okay, um, The people are oppressed. They turn away from God. But God still protects them. And there's an occasional revival every once in a while. So that brings us up almost to the time of Ezra. So we've seen God be faithful to his people despite their lack of faithfulness to him. We've seen uh, this kind of cyclical nature of people um, turning from God, God saving them. And so let's look at the chapters running right up to Ezra. So 2 Chronicles 34. We're going to look at the last good king of Judah. At this point, Israel, the northern kingdom, has fallen apart. They've been taken off into exile to Assyria. And so all that's left is this small little rump of a kingdom that had once been Solomon and David's great empire uh, around Jerusalem. And we see one good king. Okay, 2 Chronicles 34, the law is rediscovered in the temple. And Josiah, thinking about this theme of God of the promise, his relationship to his people, 3421, when he hears about the law being rediscovered, says this, Go to the priests. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judea concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which poured out on us because of our fathers who have not observed the word of the Lord." to do according to all that is written in the book. So has Josiah recognized correctly what the problem of the kingdom is? They have not been faithful. God has been faithful. God has kept his promises. God has protected them, okay? The problem isn't the economy, the army, uh, the borders, you know, his military, okay? The problem is... We have not observed the word of the Lord. And notice what else he says to do according to all that is written in this book. You have to follow all of the law. Now, as New Testament saints, is that possible? Can you follow all of the law on your own? No, you need something else, you need a Messiah. Right, You need that perfect sacrifice. And so that's echoing and looking forward much ahead, but I uh, just want to throw that in there. And so uh, later on in 34, we see a reform. So the king, of uh, verse 31, stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in the book. That's the proper response, right? So God says, follow me, okay? Believe and follow me. And so we finally see a king after several other kings who have failed, realize that and to make a movement back toward God. But it is short-lived, okay? This is the history of Israel, right? You'll have these occasional high points, but we are constantly seeing God be faithful and his people fail, all right? Um, Josiah leads the reform. Last thing I want to say on the reform is that Passover is restored. What's the symbol that revival has come? They celebrate Passover. Remember that as we get into Ezra because there'll be another revival and another celebration of the festivals, including the celebration of Passover. And remember, at the very end of our sermon, as we celebrate communion, there's a connection here that we'll talk about. And so there's this last golden moment, but it doesn't last. Josiah is killed. He makes a stupid decision to go against Pharaoh. Um, really, it's a decision to go against God and God's plan. And he's killed. And then you have a succession here in the end of Second Chronicles of bad leaders, terrible Kings, all descendants of Josiah, okay? One son is taken off by Egypt after only reigning for three months. Uh, Another son was named king by Egypt, but then angers Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in, conquers Jerusalem, and takes people back to Babylon. What did God say would happen if they disobeyed him? He'd take them from the land. Does he keep his promises? I think so, okay? And so we see a king, Jehoiakim, uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And so it's not surprising that that's followed with the king of Babylon coming in and taking people away. So this is 605. This is the first uh, deportation in Chronicles 36 and involves guys like Daniel. So if you want to do some homework for this week, as you understand the background, um, read Jeremiah, read Daniel, the guys that are around during this time that are giving you kind of introduction to that. And so Daniel, as one of the uh, of the king's house, is deported along with some of his friends. And then that leads to the book of Daniel, okay? So things have gotten bad, but there's still a king, there's still a kingdom, and it continues to get worse, okay? So you got... Jehoiakim comes along, he reigns three months and 10 days, does evil in the sight of the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar brings him to Babylon. This is the second deportation seen in 2 Chronicles 36, 9-10. Uh, you get prophets like Ezekiel now being forced into uh, exile because God promised, if you're not going to follow me, then you will see, uh, you'll be pulled out of your land and taken somewhere else, Okay. Then you get the last king, Zedekiah. Um, Zedekiah was 21 when he became king. This is verse 11. Uh, he reigned 11 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. That's another key theme, right? Does God give them warnings? Constantly. Does God provide his word so that we know what to follow and what he's thinking? He's revealed himself to us. The problem is we don't listen, right? And so Israel falls, Judah falls into the same category. Um, He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. Verse 13, he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. So is Zedekiah's problem, that he opposed the king of Babylon. Not really. What's Zedekiah's real problem? He's not following God, right? He is turn, he's not turning to God. He's doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And even the rebellion of Nebuchadnezzar here, the chronicler points out that Nebuchadnezzar made him swear by God. So it's not the revolt against the king. It's the fact he's breaking an oath that he made with God's name. Who's sovereign? Who's the actor? Who's the one doing all this? God, right? He's the one that's in charge, he's the one that's controlling. Um, okay, 2 Chronicles 36 14. Um, Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled, defiled the house of the Lord. So the king is corrupt, the priests are corrupt. They have turned from their God, the God of Israel, the God of the promise, and have defiled the house of the Lord, defiled His home, His temple. 36:15, uh, the Lord, the God of the Father, sent word to them again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and His dwelling place. God gives us warnings. God tells us his revelation. God has provided all that we need to know him, right? And they continue to ignore, continue to um, follow the nations, right? The abominations of the nations, doing whatever they can to not follow God, all right? And so just as he promised, destruction is coming. Uh, 36, 16 through 21 but they continually mocked the messengers of God. They ignored the word of God. They despised his word, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Okay? Judgment is coming. Uh, verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary. He had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hands. Yet again, this is God in control. Right? The actor is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He is the means, but it is God who has given the people over To Babylon. Verse 19, just as he promised, if you disobey me, all right. Verse 19, they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Okay, what are the two building projects in Ezra and Nehemiah? The temple and the wall. Right. So this is setting the stage for what we'll see as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its fortified buildings with fire, destroying all its valuable articles. Verse 20, those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. They have lost the land. They have been exiled. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. This is the saddest period in Judah's history. We have disobeyed God and punishment has come. The temple is destroyed. The walls have been broken down. Is there any hope at this point if you're Israel? There's hope, right? Because God is still in control. God still is the God of promises. So let's look at what Jeremiah says. It mentions you know, the, the prediction of the destruction. But in Jeremiah 29, we see the prophet speak on behalf of God to tell them as bad and as bleak as this is, Having everyone killed, destroyed, exiled, our cities destroyed, there is good news, all right? And so he writes a letter to the exiles, the first group going back, going to Babylon, to give them some, first some advice on how to live as exiles, and then to give them another promise from God, all right? So uh, Jeremiah 29, um, verse 4 through 7, he talks about living as exiles in Babylon, Uh, that they are to be good citizens. You probably know this verse. Take wives, become fathers, Um, bear sons, multiply, uh, plant gardens, build houses. Verse seven, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it is in this welfare, you will have welfare. Okay, it's gonna be a period. It's gonna be a while. So go ahead, put down a little bit of roots, build houses, okay, okay. Um, we have failed God and punishment we deserve. So do work, um, establish your lives in, in exile, but then, and it's, it's going to be a while. Okay. Despite what false prophets might tell you. And he talks about that in, uh, eight and nine, that there were some that are saying, Hey, don't worry. The exile is only a year or two. Okay. And Jeremiah responds to that. No, it's going to be a while. And then in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, the the passage that Jared read to you earlier, we see the promise that sets up the beginning of Ezra, the hope of the return of the people. Okay, so Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Is there hope as long as God's in control? Is God always in control? Okay, 70 years, you'll be in exile. There'll be 70 years where you are not in the land. There'll be no temple, there'll be no wall. But once those 70 years are up, Then we see verse 12. Then you will call upon me, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Yet again, God's the actor, isn't he? We just respond. Okay, I will come to you, I will return to you, and then you will call upon me and pray to me. And I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Verse 14 of Jeremiah 29. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place where I sent you into exile. Is that a pretty clear promise from God? That's something you can place your hope in. Very much so, okay? Despite all that they've done, despite the fact that they have ignored God, they've rejected him, there's this long history of being unfaithful. God is still faithful in the lowest point in Israel's history. I have a special relationship, God says, to this people, and I will return you to the land. And that sets up the beginning of Ezra. This promise, we've heard God will return to us. Will he do it? Okay, if you're a betting person, what do you think the beginning of Ezra will say? Okay, and other Jews, other Israelites, Judaites, um, recognize this promise and point this out. So if you uh, flip over to Daniel, you'll see Daniel makes this connection. Okay, Daniel, who received the prophecy from Jeremiah as one of the members in Babylon, says in Daniel 9, 1 through 3, in the first year uh, of Darius, the son of Asuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as to the word to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel realizes it, okay? Hey, the promise is here. There's something about to happen, okay? And then what does Daniel do? Well, what did God say would happen? He said, you know, 70 years will pass, then you will call upon me and come to pray to me. So guess what Daniel does? He calls on him and prays to him. So if you look at the rest of nine, it's a prayer to God Confessing the sins of Israel and calling for God to complete His promise, and if you read through this, and we don't have time to read through the whole thing, but you see that He appeals not to the faithfulness of the people, but to the character of God. All right, all of Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside out of Your vo- voice. So we have sinned. Okay, but forgive us, O Lord, for Your sake. Oh my Lord, this is verse nineteen. Do not delay because your city and people are called by your name. Uh, Or verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. So Daniel realizes, okay, it's nothing we have done, but this is God's character. He keeps his promises. He is abounding in mercy. He protects his people. And so that's his prayer. God, just bring us back. Fulfill your promise. Okay, conclusion. So what are some flaws? Let's kind of give you, uh, I know we jumped around a lot. Okay, we covered everything from uh, Old Testament history. We've jumped into some of the prophets. But I think you can see this, this stream Right? This this flow, God is always faithful, despite what his people do. Um, God has a special relationship with his people. He called Abraham, he called David, he called Solomon, he calls us as Christians um, to him. Not based on anything we've done, any of our background, but just based on his love and mercy. It is God the one that is acting. God's the one that returns them from exile, or will, as we see, we'll see next week in Ezra. God is the one that makes the promises. Um, he is the moving person, but we are to respond in obedience, faith and obedience, right? Abraham believed in God and was reckoned righteousness. David was a man after God's own heart. He sought the words of God. Uh, Moses provided the law Josiah, okay, talked about returning to the words of God. Jeremiah, all of these guys responded in obedience and faith just like we should, right? Daniel, when he sees the promise, places faith in the God of promises that he will return his people. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen. And so as we walk through Ezra, we'll look at these things, and we'll also look at, at, at kind of a, a three-fold structure. You might have saw it in the, in the bumper video. Um, first, it, there's, there's three stories, and they all involve three different categories. First, there's a return. God returns his people to the land. And so we'll see three returns. Okay, Then we'll see rebuilding. God, through his people, will rebuild. First, the temple and then the wall. And so we'll talk about that as we walk through Ezra as he uh, promised he would bring them back. And then restore. God restores the people to the land and eventually worship is restored in Jerusalem. Their relationship to God is restored. So those are the kind of the general themes that we're gonna look at as we move forward. And then as we keep in mind this flow of history of the Old Testament that God has promised to return his people after 70 years, and next week we'll see if he keeps it, okay? Um, So keeping all of that in mind, we have one last part of the service tonight. and We didn't plan this intentionally, but I I think it's incredibly appropriate when we're talking about uh, God of the promise and his his history, his redemptive history for his people. Um, We're gonna spend some time celebrating communion. Uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. So um, Tony, if you want to come on up, I think he's playing for this. And um, just as God promised to bring a Redeemer, right, to save them from slavery through blood, uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, is an opportunity for us to remember that activity. And just like in Old Testament, Passover is when the Israelites were looking back at how God saved them. Uh, this action that we do as a church is, has a similar function, and it's also not surprising that the last Passover dinner was the first Lord's Supper. That God, you that Christ used this illustration of, of the Passover, the blood, okay, to talk about His ultimate sacrifice for us. Uh, leading into the new covenant and the church, so um, if you didn't, and there's a couple of guys walking around. Make sure you grab one of these cups for us to celebrate. We're going to spend just a few time, a little bit of time, celebrating God of the promise, who promised to save His people, and the actions of Christ and how that led to our salvation and our ultimate freedom from slavery. Okay, our ultimate freedom from slavery. So. Um, Communion, we celebrate this on the third Sunday of every month um, because of the command of Christ. And there is a means, uh, there's a proper way to approach God. Okay, So just like um, the people uh, were supposed to respond in a certain way for Passover, uh, we are to as well. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 28. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the blood, body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So first thing I want to do is just spend a few minutes um, just examining ourselves as we remember how faithful God has been to his people leading up to the return uh, in Ezra. And also how faithful God has been to send his son to die for us. So just spend just a few seconds while Tony plays um, praying and examining yourself as we prepare ourselves in memory of what Christ has done for us. Thank you for your faithfulness in history to your people, to your providing salvation to your people, Lord, and for the fact that we can rely on you to be in charge of of all things in history and that you sent your son to die for us, Lord. I just pray for us as we move into this time, as we remember the sacrifice of your son. I pray that this is a a, a beautiful picture of of your ultimate sacrifice and love for us. So the first element is the bread. And 1 Corinthians says, The Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of him. Lord, we just thank you for your son and how his body was broken for us. We thank you for your your, your loving kindness, your mercy. that you chose us even though we were not deserving of anything, Lord, but out of your, your, your love for us, your mercy, you provided your son so that we can now be sons and heirs with him and sons and heirs of you. And Lord, we just thank you for this, this time. We thank you for your son in your name. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Lord, I just thank you yet again for your son's sacrifice, for your faithfulness. Lord, I just pray for this upcoming series that as we uh, look at these faithful men who respond to your grace in returning the people from exile, that we will be convicted of our own need of you. We will be overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy and that we will be changed as we interact with your word. So Lord, I just thank you for everyone here and pray that you will continue to be with us as we go through this series and as we go throughout the week. And pray that we continue to be a a light for others to bring them to you so that they can also experience freedom from slavery and experience being a part of the body of Christ. Lord, just thank you in your name. Amen.